Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue to investigate Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. We were saying last time that there's a unifying theme underlying all the writings of the Bible. In both Testaments, there's a backbone which gives shape and structure to the whole teaching of the Bible. That backbone may be summed up in the famous phrase found often on the lips of Jesus and also the apostles, the gospel about the kingdom of God. Jesus, when he introduced his mission and ministry in Galilee, always urged the people to repent in view of the near approach of the kingdom of God. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Here are his actual words. The kingdom of God is at hand, he said. The kingdom is the heart of the gospel. Repent and believe in that gospel message and prepare for the coming of the kingdom of God. Be ready to receive it joyfully when finally God establishes that kingdom on the earth. You'll find all that in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Throughout the New Testament, the gospel of the kingdom is abbreviated to the word word or message about the kingdom, Matthew 13, verse 19. Sometimes it's simply the word or the word of God, sometimes the gospel of God. All these titles are simply alternative phrases for the same underlying message, namely the message of the gospel of the kingdom as it came from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. Sometimes the gospel appears as the gospel of Jesus Christ or the gospel of grace. The same saving message is called the message of the truth or simply the truth. Remember that Paul invited people to come to a knowledge of the truth, which is exactly the same thing as saying that they should come to believe in Jesus Christ and his gospel message about the kingdom. In John's gospel, the gospel is called the witness or Jesus' own witness, my witness, as he used the phrase himself, or my word or words or even my teachings. Sometimes in Paul's letters, the gospel is simply called the mystery, reminding us, of course, of Jesus' own description of the mystery about the kingdom in Matthew 13, verse 11. Now, this is such an obvious thing that it hardly needs to be stated, and yet, strangely, it appears that many Bible readers today avoid the obvious content of the gospel as the gospel about the kingdom of God. They seem to be attracted only to the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, of course, these are also essential parts of the gospel message, but they are not the whole gospel. You have to remember that Jesus preached about the kingdom of God for several years before mentioning a single word about his death and resurrection. And you'll find that the apostles were even sent out to preach what's called the gospel, that's to say the gospel of the kingdom of God, before they even understood that Jesus was going to die. So the term gospel in those early parts of the ministry of Jesus, right up until the time that he declared that he was now going to Jerusalem to die, right up to that time, the gospel did not contain a single word about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now those things, the death and resurrection, were clearly added to the gospel after he died and rose again. But the central kingdom gospel, the basis of everything Jesus taught, was never left out by the apostle after the death and resurrection of Jesus had occurred. If you think of the kingdom gospel of Jesus as A, and the death and resurrection as B, then the gospel, as it continued to be preached during the New Testament times, 
was the gospel of the kingdom and the things concerning Jesus, his death and resurrection, and so on. And so it was a matter of A plus B. But today, when you hear the gospel preached, something different has happened. It sounds like B minus A. In other words, the first and fundamental element of the gospel of the kingdom has been dropped from the preaching. You don't hear the phrase gospel about the kingdom. Very seldom do you hear the word kingdom even. And if you do, it's being used in a sense foreign to the teaching of Jesus. We hear mainly only about a kingdom in your heart. But the righteousness of God and the peace of God is the kingdom of God now. It's certainly true, of course, that we should have the righteousness of God in our heart, but that's in a very specialized sense. The bulk of the statements about the kingdom of God in Jesus' teaching clearly have to refer to a future event, when Jesus comes back in power and glory to establish the kingdom of God on the earth. That is indeed what we pray for when we say, Thy kingdom come. We're not just praying there for an increase of love and joy and peace in our hearts, I must tell you, we're praying for the great event to which the whole of the Hebrew Bible looked forward, the establishment of a complete peace, an entire absence of violence, an absence of poverty on earth, the absence of divorce in a new society that will be established on earth when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom in Jerusalem and reign on the throne of David, as the prophets predicted. And so it's a considerable mistake to say, for instance, as I heard somebody say the other day, that we should no longer pray, Thy kingdom come, because the kingdom of God has already been set up. I must tell you that what we see by way of conditions on the earth today is not the kingdom of the prophets of Israel. It's not the kingdom of God predicted by the sages of old in Israel when they said that the lion would lie down with the lamb, when they said that the bear would graze with the cow in the same field, and that all the nations would beat their swords into plowshares and not learn war ever again. That simply has not happened. That's why we should still pray then, Thy kingdom come. But Christian faith in the promises of God, which cannot be broken, assures us that one day, we don't know exactly when, those conditions, those ideal conditions, will indeed prevail across our planet. At present, much preaching seems to avoid this obvious content of the gospel as the gospel about the coming kingdom. There seems to be something of a departure from the teachings of the Lord Jesus, whom we claim to serve. We believe that revival will come when the gospel of the kingdom is once again made the center of all preaching as it was in apostolic times. Ministries of all types might like to compare their own writing and preaching with that of Paul and Jesus on the subject of the kingdom. Could it be said of modern evangelicals that they, quote, welcome the people and begin talking about the kingdom of God? You'll find that's what Jesus and Paul always did. See, for example, Luke 9, verse 11, and Acts 28, verse 30. Talking about the kingdom of God is one of the most satisfying activities a Christian can enjoy. It's nothing less than his duty as a servant of the Lord Messiah. What else ultimately matters other than gaining immortality in the coming kingdom of God promised by the Bible? There are just masses of text in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, the Bible known to Jesus, which describes a time when God is going to initiate a kingdom of God on a renewed earth. It seems to us a miracle of misunderstanding to suppose that Jesus did not believe in those promises. We can be absolutely sure that Jesus, as a lover of God's revelation in the Scriptures, firmly believed that God was going to intervene in world affairs to restore peace to our tortured earth. I remember as a child growing up in a big state church in England, 
wondering about the marvellous vision of the future which used to be read out to us at the Christmas season. Many of you know these verses very well indeed, but let me rehearse them once again for you. Isaiah 9, verse 6, and the following verses say, A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful, Counselor, Divine Hero, Father of the Coming Age, and Prince of Peace. There'll be no end to the increase of his kingdom to establish it and to maintain it with justice and righteousness on the throne of David from then on and forevermore. When I was a child, I considered the state of the world, and it seemed to me absolutely impossible to believe for one moment that anything like what was described here by Isaiah could possibly be true now. That verse in Isaiah 9 said that God would establish the kingdom of his Son on the throne of David from then on. But from when on? What did Isaiah mean? The fact that we were reading this verse at Christmas time seemed to be telling us that the kingdom was set up at the birth of Jesus and that this marvelous ideal state of affairs, this idyllic picture of peace on earth, ought to be happening now. Surely after 2,000 years at least, David's messianic kingdom ought to be quite obvious on earth. There was supposed to be an ongoing increase of the influence of the Davidic kingdom across the earth and peace was supposed to be prevailing everywhere. But sober reflection, even in those early days, made me wonder how in the world that promise could have really been fulfilled. Forty years later, I know that the promise of the return and the restoration of the Davidic throne and the appearance of the kingdom of God on earth has not happened. It is sheer wishful thinking to suppose that the conditions which the great Isaiah described have really taken shape on the earth. What about the exciting promise of the time coming when the temple will be made prominent in Jerusalem and all the nations will stream up to it and beg to be taught God's revelation? Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. What about this era when instruction from the headquarters in Jerusalem will produce a complete disarmament of the nations? I hope that you've not lost the wide-eyed faith of a child recommended by Jesus. I trust you've not been misled into thinking that these promises have already been fulfilled. I want to tell you that the nations have never disarmed. They've never begged for instructions from the God of Israel's Messiah headquartered in Jerusalem. And yet that's exactly what Isaiah describes here. No one can convince me that in some mystical way Isaiah was talking about a kingdom just in the heart of man, but without any external manifestation, such as the total abandonment of war by the nations. Didn't the psalmist say that Quote, God makes wars to cease in all the world. I'm sure it hasn't happened yet, but I'm equally sure that it will. It will happen in God's own time, and nothing that we can do will bring it to pass other than praying, Thy kingdom come, and helping to announce the gospel of the kingdom worldwide before Jesus returns. Matthew 24, verse 14. If we're prepared to love the things that Jesus loved and commit ourselves to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament on which he'd been trained, that 75% of the Christian Bible, then we're going to have to admit that much of what is said there in that Old Testament has not found fulfillment yet. Some of the things certainly have been fulfilled, but there's a vast mass of prophetic writings which has not yet come to pass, but it will consequent on Jesus' return to this earth. Let me give you one final text which so beautifully describes what will happen in the great day of the arrival of the kingdom of God. Micah chapter 4 and verse 7, 
says the following, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation, and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem that is, from then on and forevermore. As for you, tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you it will come, even the former dominion will come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. There you have the whole idea of the coming kingdom. That's the basis exactly for Jesus' famous request in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to check our findings carefully in your own Bible with special emphasis on your reading of the prophets in the Old Testament and their vision of the coming kingdom. Write to us or call us. We have a free book on the kingdom of God to offer you and the telephone number will be given at the end of this program. We remind you always to be Berean students of the Scriptures, searching the Bible daily, as the good people in Berea in Acts 17.11 always did. Check our findings against the gold standard of the Bible. Do not take for granted what you hear preached, but check it out against the standard given us in the Scriptures themselves. Remember always that Jesus was a Jew who must be understood in his own first century Jewish context. It's a great mistake to suppose that we can understand the Bible only in 20th century categories. Join me again as I continue to investigate Jesus' favorite topic and the secrets of immortality as he brought them to us in his gospel about the kingdom of God.